Our reading this morning is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. Please stand with me as we read God's word together. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, for he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. Well, they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that you have freely given your son to wretched sinners for their redemption, for their healing, for their adoption. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us and help us to see how your gift is supposed to flow out into gifts from us, from, from the heart, with joy. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, this message is intended to provide a context for what we'll be doing later this afternoon as a part of our worship and a part of our life together as a community. And as I was thinking about this and our need for biblical teaching about the nature of giving in the church, I thought it would be helpful to examine a common cultural impression or a cultural pressure 
that exists on many people. Living in the Western culture, that is living in the West, or some people might say Western Europe or America, everyone is tempted by the world system to spend all of our money, all of our time, and all of our talents on ourselves and our things. And sometimes when people get married, they then expand that tiny circle to include, okay, now it's not just going to be me, it's now just going to be my family and the stuff that I care about. I want you to consider the truth of this reality through one piece of evidence. I want to ask you to think about right now with me the phenomenon that is the selfie. Okay? I want you to think about this. Who, who in here has not taken a selfie? Okay, we have one person, two people out of 30 or so, 40. I can't, I can't count. I want you to consider that this is actually a touchstone or a barometer on the culture. I want you to examine the idea of a selfie through two possible lenses. One is as an artist, a photographer as an artist, and the other lens of photography uh, as documentarian or a documentary. Whether this photographer is an artist or a documentarian, the act of taking a selfie, a selfie is perhaps a radical statement. I say perhaps because I do not mean to say that if you take a selfie that you are necessarily doing the cultural impulse that I'm exa examining and ex explaining here. By nature, artists subject the entire world onto a canvas, whether that canvas is an actual canvas or a piece of marble or a piece of stone or even a photo itself. An artist is narrowing the scope of his work to a subject, and by nature, the choice of that subject confers significance on the subject, right? If, a, if an artist... Uh, examines a portrait or a person, they're going to highlight certain things and disemphasize uh, dis other things. The documentarian is exactly the same in this way. They are informing other people about what they consider to be newsworthy or worthy to be remembered. For example, Ken Burns. You, many of you know Ken Burns. He wrote subjects and the nature of the American national park system and the history of the music of jazz and the Civil War, Ken Burns and his fellows were saying, these are worth remembering, these are worth presenting, these are worth telling people about and educating people about. Both the artist or the documentarian and the documentarian emphasize certain things and by nature have to exclude others. That's the process in a way of doing art. But by far, the most important thing that they do is they choose a subject. You can't make a documentary about everything. That would just be everything. That, you, you can't write a book about everything. That would just be everything. You have to, by nature, narrow your scope to something. So the question has to be asked, when the person is taking a selfie, what is it saying about their life? Now, again, I didn't say, I'm not intending to imply that your act of selfieing is sin. What I'm saying is, if you look at some people's phones and their entire phone, they go somewhere nice and their entire phone is just filled with them, what does that say about them? It says that in a, in a strong way, the world system has, Im, they've imbibed of it and they've begun to adopt it. I, I have a saying that uh, I like to tell my wife, I'm not really into selfies, I'm into families. Because I like taking photos of people I care about. 
And hopefully that includes other people. Even if you're not married, it should include other people. And if you're, for example, the the nature of the selfie can be explained in this way. If you go to the Grand Canyon and all you come back with are selfies, you're missing the point. You're missing the point. Now, you can't capture the Grand Canyon in a photo, but that, that is hyperbolous, right? What I'm saying is this is, a, this is a little manifestation of what I consider to be a general trend in the Western world of hyper-individualism. We like us. I like me. That's, that's what the world system is saying. But the reason that Christ came into the world was partly not only to deliver us from sin, of course, and to make an atonement and to represent the Father and to show signs and wonders, but Christ also came so that he would deliver us from self-focused lives. He would deliver us from being consumed on ourselves and our own experiences and our own things. Therefore, as new creations in Christ, the Holy Spirit enables us to live lives which are productive and they flow out to other people. That's why I like to say I don't like selfies, I like families, because it's, it's try, I'm trying to communicate, you know, it's not about me anymore, it's about us, and then it's about all of us. And the, the idea is that our lives as Christians are supposed to outflow in works of service and mercy to other people. We're supposed to be like Christ. We're supposed to be incarnational and minister to others. So to that end, Paul's letter actually addresses one of the greatest problems in our Christian world. Paul, as he wrote to the Corinthians, describes a nature of the Christian church in the first century. Through Paul's letter, we see in the details of him retelling the history a sort of commerce that exists between the churches. And this commerce, I don't mean business, I mean that there's a sharing and a receiving, that there's a giving and a returning. And there's some action between the churches in the first centuries that Paul is describing. And in fact, it's not just here in 2 Corinthians, as we'll see briefly. Not every church, Paul says, was eager to engage in this sort of commerce. Each church had a different measure of health and a different measure of grace. For example, it would be improper for the Galatians to be hyper-focused about other people when they are in crisis themselves. God gives grace and churches move through seasons. Nevertheless, Paul tells the Philippians, you yourselves know that no other church but you participated at first in giving and receiving in the gospel. And so the Corinthians now have heard of the plight of the saints in Jerusalem, and therefore they have expressed an eager desire to send them aid. If you remember in 1 Corinthians Paul actually does describe that when he comes, there should be no collecting. So we know this is a continuing experience in the Corinthian church. They are, they are concerned with other people. Paul, therefore, is reminding them in this passage of their zeal that they had to encourage them to complete their zeal in action. They, they cannot just boast about wanting to give or wanting to help. Paul then calls on them and makes plans to help them fulfill their zeal or to complete their zeal by completing the goal. So, to that end, I want to look at this passage and see how it applies to our cultural context, that Paul explains a concern for the Jerusalem Christians, that he then gives a command to joyfully give, which is the heart of what I wish to impress upon you this morning, then Paul's wonderful, amazing promise that God is able to supply all grace 
to the Corinthian church. That is perhaps one of my favorite verses. It routinely is a verse that I come to over and over again and will commend it to you this morning. And then finally, I want to examine the nature of gift as it glorifies God in the churches. I want to give a little bit of historical background that I think is important to consider when we see throughout the New Testament the context of the giving in Jerusalem. After Pentecost, the Christians knew what would take place in the city of Jerusalem. Jesus had plainly taught over and over again, as we see recorded in the Gospels, that the blood of the, the people of Jerusalem and their children will be on their own heads. And it's a very sobering aspect to the ministry of Christ that Jesus, as the great and final prophet, is pronouncing woes upon the city of Jerusalem for renouncing and rejecting and ultimately murdering the Messiah. And therefore, he warns them that there will come a time when the city is surrounded, and we know that that took place. The saints who heard these things, the apostles and the disciples who heard these things, knew clearly well what Jesus was saying. In fact, Jesus was so explicit in his warnings, even the Pharisees knew what was going to happen. If you remember the parable of the vineyard and the vine renter, the vineyard renters, he says that the, the owner of the vineyard will come and he will bring these people out and slay them. And then, I forget which gospel it is, but it, then the narrator records that the Pharisees knew he was speaking about them. Matthew what? Matthew and Luke. So it's a very clear understanding of the New Testament. This is no new doctrine for us as, as a people. Nevertheless, the saints knew this, and therefore they took particular direct intentional actions. The saints in Jerusalem divested of their property. As far as we know, the holding of all property in common that we read about in Acts 2, verses 44 and 45, was never imitated in another Christian church. As far as we know, the Christians in Jerusalem, therefore, intentionally saw themselves as living as a prophetic witness against Jerusalem. That is to say, their actions of selling their stuff and getting rid of their things and giving the money over to the apostles was not just a wonderful action of the Holy Spirit, but it was an intentional plan and a prophetic action by which they were trying to say the glory is about to depart from Israel. We're about to leave as well. You, not only have you rejected and thrown Jesus out of your city, murdering him outside the gates, we will also leave at the proper time. This city, we know from the scriptures, was a city that delighted itself in riches and boasted about its wealth and commerce. And nevertheless, as we see in the book of Revelation, that there was woe pronounced against that city. These Christians are therefore like Jeremiah or like Ezekiel. I, I love these stories of the prophets who pronounced judgment against the nations or against the cities of God who had rebelled by inflicting their own selves. That's what these Christians are doing. So that is my understanding of the reason for the perpetual need for taking up assistance to the city of Jerusalem that we see in second, first and second Corinthians and Philippians as, and probably some other books. Further, these Christians, as the book of Hebrews suggests, were likely the recipients of burglary and persecution. That is, retribution from the Jews 
that Hebrews 10.34 says that you gladly accepted the plundering of your property, for you knew that you had a much better possession and an abiding one. The idea was that not only had they sold their things, they probably also were deeply persecuted. Therefore, because Paul is acquainted with the saints in Jerusalem, he desires to send the, uh, support the poor by encouraging the churches to contribute them. Paul knows that the nature of the body is such that the stronger members are supposed to support the weakers, weaker members. Therefore, he writes that the Corinthians would actually be able, as I said, to complete their goal, that their zeal would actually become action. Verse 1, therefore, he says, now it is superfluous. He's saying, I do not need to remind you, nevertheless, it's superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry of the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. Paul is declaring that he does not need to remind them of the need to support the Jerusalem Christians. They've already expressed eagerness, and that has even encouraged the Macedonians. Macedonia and Achaia are both geographic regions that are very close together, um, and therefore what he's saying is, I, I think he's implying there's some sort of good, friendly rivalry between the churches of these regions. Uh, well, mo much more friendly than that, I think. I hope, I hope. The desire of the Corinthians has, has been told to the Macedonians, and they've, they've been encouraging one another to, to give. I think there's a godly rivalry here. And though the Corinthians have expressed a desire, the Corinthians have not given again. In 1 Corinthians, the Corinthian church is recorded as uh, preparing. Paul tells them, you must collect before I get there so it will not be excised. Nevertheless, they haven't given again. And so it's not the case that we as Christians can just give one time. Though there was an expressed desire, the Corinthians have not given again, and therefore Paul is taking very simple and very proper steps to ensure that they complete the work. He says in verse 3, But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident." So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you had promised. So the context here is Paul will be coming to Corinth, and he travels with other brothers. And some of those brothers he has sent to Corinth, perhaps likely, very likely carrying this letter. And they are not only delivering the letter, they also are going to encourage the church to take action. He says, for, the, for this reason, so that it may be ready as a willing gift not as an exaction. I want you to think about that as we move forward. Paul here is modeling the heart of Christ. He handles with meekness the Corinthian church, not demanding, but appealing. Nevertheless, Paul knows that unless the Corinthians give, Jerusalem cannot receive, and therefore Paul urges the brothers to administrate this graciously. After briefly explaining his actions, Paul then clearly teaches the motivation for wanting to send these brothers ahead so that they would be prepared. Paul then goes on to explain here the nature of sowing and reaping. In doing this, Paul commands the Corinthians to give joyfully. I want to say that again. Paul commands 
that they give joyfully. What do I mean by that? As he says in verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Paul's explanation of the Corinthians is simply an application of the parable of the talents. Those who bury their resources instead of investing them in kingdom business bring little credit to the master. We remember the parable of the talents, don't we? He didn't sow money the right way. You can't put money in the ground. It's not a seed. Seeds go in the ground. Money goes out in business. Money goes out in alms. Money goes out in charity. And Paul is essentially just saying, if you do not sow, you cannot reap. Now, modern prosperity teaching, however, twists this beyond the point of Paul's teaching. Paul is not teaching a formula for turning tithes and offerings into cash in the bank and bills paid. He is not teaching that you sow and reap in like nature in all circumstances. Yes, to be true, there is a general pattern that God always supplies the needs of His people, and very often there is a very strong correlation between those who are generous to the Lord and those whom He protects from tragedy and prospers in many dimensions of life. The problem with the prosperity teaching is it teaches, I'm going to give to God so that I can get a car. I'm going to give to God so that I can get rid of my cancer. I'm going to give to God. I'm going to sow this seed of faith so that I can have stuff. And that's the opposite of Christ. Christ did not come into the world and hang on a cross so that I could have a Camaro or a Mercedes or whatever it is that I or the latest iPhone, whatever you want to insert into that thing that you're hoping to cajole Jesus into giving you, that's not why he came. Paul is not talking about those who sow into missions and into alms and into charity receiving goods. He's not talking about that in any way. Paul's explanation is to give them an inspiration. He's encouraging them to consider not the opportunity to get, but the opportunity to give. The Corinthians have the ability and the opportunity to provide relief to very oppressed and very overworked saints in the center of the hotbed of persecution of the Jews. They have the ability, by sending aid, to express love, to strengthen the hearts of those in the most wicked city on the earth far more wicked than the city of Rome. Why were they far more wicked than the city of Rome? Because they had crucified the Messiah. Rome, for all its vileness and lust and violence, it had never crucified the Messiah. Jerusalem was the apex of opposition and persecution. Now, to be sure, as Christian history moves forward, Rome will pick up the baton where Jerusalem left off. But at this time, he's encouraging the saints, to support the, the, where the need is most felt and most acute. Giving in this way by the Corinthians is going to produce not only the relief of some brothers and sisters in the faith, it's going to cause praise to be given to God, that the act of giving will cause worship. Paul wants them to understand the opportunity not to get, but to give, to give glory to God by giving money to 
saints who need that money. The Corinthians, therefore, Paul commands to give, but he commands them to do it without reluctance nor under compulsion. So confident is Paul's understanding of the mechanism of how their joyful gift glorifies God that he says they should not give if they aren't eager. Here's where preachers have to trust in Christ. Can you imagine Paul saying this? Paul is saying you must give not under compulsion. He says that they shouldn't give if they're not eager to give. Likewise, he says that they should not give if they feel the need that they have to give. The question we have to ask is why not? Shouldn't we give while we work on the motives? Aren't we commanded throughout Scripture to obey at times that we don't feel like obeying? Well, yes, we are. We're never supposed to commit the sins that we don't want to do or that we want to do just because we know the external code. Paul's explaining to them the nature of gifts, and he's explaining how the glory of God is directly connected to their heart in the act of giving. I want you to think about this. If I give a gift because I think I have to give it, is it a gift? Do you ever submit a check to the IRS and you mark it as a gift? I remember watching this video on YouTube in which a senator was trying to maintain that, that tax submission is voluntary. And it was, it was mind-boggling, the mental gymnastics he was engaging in. It's not a gift if I think I have to give it. It's, it's bill-paying. The ethics of Christian obedience in the Christian life never has at its aim a mere external deed or action. It is not enough for you, brothers and sisters, to put to death lust because you know the external code. That is a help. That is an external objective standard of morality by which you measure your heart and you measure your actions. Christian ethics, Christian morality always considers the nature of the heart of the person doing or not doing the thing. Isn't that what Jesus taught us in the Sermon on the Mount? You've heard it said that whoever commits adultery... But I say to you, whoever looks from his heart, Jesus is constantly taking the law and applying it and pressing out its implications. And therefore, God, Jesus says, always sees the heart. Who can see whether that man has committed adultery in his heart or not? The Lord. The Lord who weighs the hearts can see. And therefore, God always sees the heart. What this does is a great grace to the Christian. It stops hypocrisy dead in its tracks. Isn't it a wonderful grace that God is not willing for us to externally obey but inwardly disobey? He won't let us get by with that. His word calls us to examine our hearts and our motives. Therefore, Paul is saying if the Corinthians are giving under compulsion, they would be lying about the nature of God who gives freely. That their actions are an act of confessing the faith. And if they give because they think they have to, they're lying about God. They're, They're saying that God is the kind of person who gives merely out of pity, not out of love or merely out of a a, a sense of obligation and not eager desire. God didn't reluctantly give the son. He freely gave the son, as Paul goes on to describe. He He is explaining to these Corinthians that they must see the nature of their gift. If they do not see the way that their gift will bring joy to others 
and glory to God, then they can't give out of joy. Paul is saying that God loves a cheerful giver, right? He's saying that He loves a giver who gives cheerfully. And so often we take that word cheerful and we instantly translate it to just eh, kind of an emotional sense of whether I feel good in the moment of giving or not. But what he means is God loves a giver who's giving for the purpose of joy. God loves someone who understands how these gifts will be affecting others so that they praise God. God loves a giver who does it out of love, out of out of a desire for joy, the joy of others in their joy in God. Cheerful giving, therefore, is not chipper giving. It's not hyper-emotional, and it's not done out of pity. We all remember the, the videos on the television, or, or for example, who, who's seen the Sarah McLaughlin appeal commercial where they're showing the puppies and Sarah McLaughlin's you know, singing in the arms of an angel or something like that? If you haven't seen that commercial, please look it up on YouTube at some point. It's amazing, but what it is, it's an, it's an emotional appeal for pity. Now, compassion and sympathy is not necessarily a sin, but it's, a, it's an emotional appeal that is working on the heartstrings that is not also wanting love to be the motivation. True, cheerful giving sees the goal of the gift as the creation of joy in the recipient. Therefore, if I think I have to give, I do not want that person to have joy, right? So true cheerful giving sees the goal of the gift as the creation of joy in the recipient of the gift through the lifting of burdens or the satisfying of desires. I want you to think of this, especially as birthdays come up, weddings come up, Christmas comes up. When you give, if you are giving just because you think someone else will give you a gift, then you need to re-examine your motives and still give after repenting of your motives. True giving, a gift, wants the recipient of the gift to be delighted. And that can happen really in two ways, either through a burden being lifted from them, or that some desire that they have will be satisfied. For example, if I am in need of a new car because my car died in a fire or something like this, true giving meets a burden-lifting need. It creates joy by delivering me from the burden. Or in the case of like a Christmas gift, if I know, if I learn about you that you have some desire for something that perhaps might be beneficial and is not unlawful, it's not going to contribute to evil desire or it's not going to ruin your life, I can get that because you want that thing and it's my desire to give you joy through the meeting of a desire that you have. Nevertheless, whether it is burden lifting or desire meeting, both kinds of gifts are only joy-filled gifts if the aim is that the recipient can recognize the grace of God in that gift. If I'm merely giving a gift so that someone will think I'm great, it's not a gift. It doesn't glorify God in the least. If, however, I give a gift so that the recipient can recognize the grace of God in the gift, then my joy is multiplied by their joy, and both of our joys culminate in the thanksgiving given to God. That is what the nature of Christian giving is. Therefore, Paul reminds them of God's great power to cause their desires for godliness to be fulfilled in these ways. In verse 8, Paul says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. I love that promise. You want to know why I love that promise? It's because three times the Apostle Paul says that you will have all sufficiency to do every good desire in Christ. Isn't that the best? That is one of the best promises in the New Testament. Not just the escaping of wrath, not just knowing that we receive God and and now have a communion, but that God is intimately and actively involved in my day-to-day desires to do good works for His glory. That if my heart is truly set on glorifying God, He promises that He will never take His grace away. If I have a desire that is truly God-glorifying and accords with the will of God, Paul is saying God is able to make all grace abound to you. Not so that you could have stuff, but so that your life could be a productive life and actually glorify God. A few weeks ago, we've been talking about the significance that is given to the Christian in their lives, that their lives are not just uh, lives that are self-focused or lives that finish at their death, but their lives are supposed to be productive and glorifying to God by demonstrating His worth through every action that they take. And that right there in verse 8 is one of the most precious promises in fulfilling that vision of Christian life, that God is able to make all grace abound to me so that I can abound in every good work. What a promise. He says then in verse 9, as it is written, He has freely distributed, or he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Paul here is amazingly quoting Psalm 112 in the context of God's generosity. In the context of how Paul just quoted Psalm 112, he said, God is able to make all grace abound to you. As it is written, he has distributed freely. Paul, as we read him, we might think that he's referring to God's free dispensing of grace. Indeed, it does. As we said earlier, God freely gave Jesus Christ in the gospel to all who will call on him. But if you go and read Psalm 112, we don't have time, but I would encourage you tonight to read it. When you read Psalm 112, we realize that the one who has actually distributed freely is, as Psalm 112 begins, the man who fears the Lord. In Psalm 112, verse 1, it says, Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. And then he moves to the end of the psalm, and then it says, That man has distributed freely. And yet Paul has just quoted it in the context of God distributing freely. The point is this, that we are supposed to be perplexed a little bit by this quotation. And therefore, we're supposed to understand how God's free giving is supposed to result in our free giving. Understanding the whole picture, God indeed has freely given in the gospel, and now man can resolve and respond and freely give as well. Paul likewise then alludes to the great promise of Isaiah that God will redeem Israel by his word going forth. He says in verse 10, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Again, the prosperity teaching twists these verse and it says seed for sowing and bread for eating are money. And yet in the context of Paul's quote of Isaiah 55, 10 and 11, it is the word of God. 
The point of the quotation is that Paul is saying that seed for sowing and bread for eating is the Word of God going forth and the Word of God being multiplied in the hearts of Christian churches and the Christian saints. How soul-destroying it is to imbibe of the prosperity gospel. Therefore, the Corinthians are supposed to see their contributions of money as connected with the holy purpose of God's Word finding fruit among God's people. Therefore, Paul explains that their giving is not going to just meet the needs of the saints, but will actually cause God to be glorified. For the ministry of this service, that is the the administration of getting this money to the Jerusalem Christians, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing into many thanksgivings of God. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's saying, what you do in giving this money, it's not just going to help the Jerusalem Christians. It will result in praise to God. By their approval, the Jerusalem Christians, by their approval of this service, their reception of this money we are administrating, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. I love that phrase. Your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel. We who believe the gospel are commanded to live in such a way that we re-examine our deeds and our life in accordance with our confession of faith. That our confession of faith that we hold, that we trust in, necessarily has very concrete applications. Therefore, he's saying that the Jerusalem Christians are going to praise God not only for the gift that their burdens have been lifted, but that in receiving the gift, they now are looking back at the Corinthians and can see the fruit of a changed heart. Do you see what's going on? The Corinthians are giving gifts, lifting burdens, and God will be glorified because the Jerusalems will thank Him for lifting the burdens by causing the Corinthians to give. Likewise, the Jerusalem Christians are able to thank God because they see the work of the Holy Spirit in transforming the Corinthians to be delivered from self. It's a glorious participation in the gospel that the churches have commerce together and that they all glorify God together in giving and in receiving. And how wicked is the prosperity gospel that perverts this into stuff for me and it completely loses sight of glorifying God. That is the aim of the gift That is the aim of sacrificial living so that others would glorify God, not so that I would get stuff. Verse 14, while they long for you and they pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. As I said, the money is not just accomplishing felt needs, but those who receive it praise God for the gift. And their gift doesn't just provide stuff, it creates worship. Finally, Paul himself is then moved to worship even as we are right now because of the beauty of what God has done in giving the body this ability. It could have been the case, brothers and sisters, that God did not want the body to take care of itself. He could have set up the church in a different way so that we could not be reflective aspects or mirrors of the grace of the Father in giving the Son, and yet God has so condescended not only to send His Son and send His Spirit to dwell in us, but that He has now condescended to use us as He strengthens the bride of Christ. Therefore, Paul explodes in worship, saying, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. That's why Paul moves to worship, because he sees this dynamic among the churches 
And he's in awe of how compassionate God is in allowing us to take part in. That is what the inexpressible gift is. And that is why God is worthy of receiving thanks. Because God's people are used by God to bring about his own purposes and his own desires. This is a stunning privilege we have today, brothers and sisters. So my call to you this morning is that as those who have freely received from the Lord, let us lay hold of his promises. Cling to 2 Corinthians 9.18. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. Cling to that promise. Don't be deceived by the prosperity teaching, but cling to that promise so that you would cheerfully aid your brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Corinthian letters. We thank you that Paul shows clearly how you've given a privilege for us to participate in giving and in receiving. We pray that you would greatly strengthen our our resolve and our joy in giving, that you would help us to see the ability to partner with you in your kingdom work. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.